Uh, Romans chapter 9, uh, 1 through 3 is what I want to talk about tonight. Um, but I'll read to verse 5 because it it's, ends the sentence. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, <clears throat> to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, <clears throat> Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. When we come to the Word of God, we, we recognize that there are chapter divisions and that they're not inspired. Uh, Romans is one of those books that I think we have a tendency to look at chapters 1 to 8 as kind of a unit, and then 9 to 16 is just kind of what he was just tidying things up. He had a lot of other things he wanted to talk about, government and election and predestination, and so he just kind of added those on at the end. Um, and it's, it's very simplistic. I know nobody really looks at it that way, but we do have a tendency to look at those first eight chapters and then stop and think, okay, now we're doing something different. I don't think Paul was. And if we look at this, <coughs> you know, Romans 8 starts out with a great, there is therefore now no condemnation. He starts in chapter 1 with our state. He comes through the gospel. He gives us justification. He gets the sanctification. We end up in 8, and we've got this great... Uh, Climax of there is therefore now no condemnation. And then the final, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But then we get to this next sentence, and he says, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, but he says, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow. And we ask the question, how does he get from that height to that depth in one sentence? It's just from here and just crashing down. And I think it's really quite simple. Uh, he, he, the outworking of all that he said before, a believed gospel will take the soul to, to the very heights of heaven. It will fill the heart with a kind of exuberant triumph, as we've seen in the preceding verses. But that grace will overflow. It will overflow. The heart cannot contain it. And we see that Paul, in this place, is kind of like the rubber hitting the road, so to speak. This is the outcome of a heart that knows the grace of God and cannot stand to see others without it. So let's look at what he's actually saying. I say the truth in Christ. He starts off, he says, I'm telling you the truth. You know, I'm telling you the truth, but I'm not just telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth as a Christian man. There's some, there's extra power to that. He says it's in Christ. I'm telling you, as Christ is my witness. It's almost an oath. It's not. He's not making an oath, but he's saying Christ is my witness here. I am telling you the truth. That would have been enough. And in most places in the Scripture, that is enough. We, we don't have these multiple, you know, truth, 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 truth. He goes on. He says, I lie not. So first he said, I'm telling you the truth. And now he goes to the negative and says, and I'm not lying. So he's saying the same thing twice. Boom. Now we do see that with Christ. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you. But Paul goes a step further. He says, my conscience also 
bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. This third statement of I'm telling you the truth is even stronger than the first two because now he's calling an outside witness. We don't control our consciences. We don't tell our conscience what to tell us. It tells us when we've done something wrong. We, you, know, you, you do something and you maybe wish your conscience wasn't there sometimes because it's just going to hound you until you correct your course. It's God's gift to us. It's something that is outside of us, even though it is us. It is our conscience. But he says even more than that. He says, in the Holy Ghost. Our conscience can be wrong. Right? I mean, before we were saved, our conscience would tell us things that we should do or we shouldn't do, and it may or may not have been right. Even as Christians, we grow in, our, in the grace that God gives us, and we learn the liberty that we have in Him, and things that we might have thought were wrong for us at one point in our walk, as our conscience is instructed by the Word of God, our conscience then may not condemn us on something. But He's saying, my, it, it's my conscience, it's bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. So he's actually calling two persons of the Trinity into this and saying, I am telling you the truth. And you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, why? Why is he going to such great lengths to tell us, I am telling you the truth? After he's just gone through all of this, he's gone to the very height, and now he comes down and he says, okay, I've got something to tell you. And it's the truth. <laughs> really, it's the truth. <clears throat> and the next statement is, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Well, we can believe that. So that's not what he's telling us the truth about. Because we can understand that, right? I mean, we can even get it if he's talking about the enemies of his soul, which he is. Because in chapter 10, he tells us it's the Jews he's talking about. It, well, even later in chapter 9. It's that next line. It takes our breath away. I mean, it just absolutely stops us short. We cannot go any further. It's just so stunning. I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, the Apostle Paul, for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul really did say that. And it's no wonder that he had to say, really, I mean it. <laughs> I really mean it. I'm not lying. I'm calling Christ as my witness. The Holy Ghost controlled conscience also bears witness to this. I really could wish this. Is Paul wishing it? No. He's not saying, I do wish this. He's saying, I could. If it were possible, I could wish that I were accursed for my brethren's sake. His heart loves so much these brethren and sees so clearly their danger that I could wish that I would take their place if it meant that they were saved. And that immediately presents us with a question. Can we say that? Can we look around the room and look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, I could wish for you. Now obviously we're all saved. We wouldn't say that here. But could we say it to our children? Could you say to your son or to your daughter... I could wish that I myself were accursed if it would mean that you were saved. Can we say it to our wives? Can we say it to our husbands? That's a, that's a tough question. I mean, and this is Paul saying, I could wish that this were the case.
really begs the question, do we really know what love is? We pray for the people on our list for their salvation, and we should. And would we, would we die for them if, to see them saved? Could we even go that far? Could we even say, I would die to see this person saved? Some of us, I think, could go that far and say, for a righteous man, even some would dare to die. But could we say it for the soul that lies in the gutter? Could we say it for the one who is the cross-dresser, comes to the doors of the church and needs salvation? Could we say it for them? Yes, we would die for our wives. We would. We would die for our husbands. We would die for our children. We would. We might even die for one another. I hope we would. And I hope we have that kind of love amongst the brethren that we would, we would lay down our lives for each other. For a righteous man, some would even dare to die. But anathema? Anathema? That is something entirely different than that kind of love. It is infinitely higher. We say we love the brethren, and so we do. But we, do we know this kind of love for them? Again, Paul is not saying, I would give up an afternoon for them. I would give up 20 bucks. He's saying, I would wish that I were a cursed anathema from Christ for their sakes that they might be saved. Moses, in a similar passage, says something no less shocking. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, Blot me, I pray thee, out of the book which thou hast written. Moses had just been in the presence of God. He came down from the mountain and there was the golden calf. He went right back up the mountain. And this is what he said. If you will not forgive them, blot me out too. How did these men reach such heights of love? I think perhaps because they saw the love of God more clearly than most of us do. They were simply reflecting the face of God. When Moses came down from the mount, his face shone. And the text tells us, his heart did too. (laughs) It wasn't just his face that had been changed. Moses saw God. Show me your glory, right? What did God say? His goodness passed before him. And Moses came down the mountain and said, I want to die for these people because I see the love that God has for them. And he was bold. There are many commentators on the scriptures, and I, I looked, I, I, was, I was baffled by this, but I, many of them don't agree with me. They say that they'll, they'll do all kinds of gymnastics to make these texts say something just short of what they actually say. And I was very glad. I, I went and looked up some things for Spurgeon, and I found a quote. Um, well, let me get, I'll get to that in a minute. It, it, the meaning is plain. I mean, it, it's right there. The pathos is deep. It's, it's, it's not, this is not something that's surface. It is just immense in its, its signification. Um, and we cannot imagine, perhaps, and it makes us very uncomfortable to even consider this. But our inability to scale those heights in our present state does not mean that they are not there. Just because I stand at the base of an Everest and I look at it and say, well, I'm not dressed for it and I don't have the training and I don't have the equipment, it can never be done. It doesn't mean that there haven't been myriads of people who have reached the summit. And that I, too, couldn't reach that summit if 
given the proper training and the time and the effort to get there. Um, and then Spurgeon was talking about these commentators. He said, this text has so puzzled the expositors that they have done their very best to kill it and tear its heart out, to get rid of its obvious meaning. He goes on, he says, My dear friends, if you take passionate expressions to pieces with icy hands, you will never understand anything which comes from the heart. Of course, the apostle never thought of wishing that he could be the enemy of Christ, but he did sometimes look at the misery which comes upon those who are separated from Christ until he felt that if he could save his kinsmen by his own destruction, yes, by himself enduring their heavy punishment, he could wish to stand in their place. He did not say that he ever did wish it, but he felt as if he could wish it when his heart was warm. He goes on to say of his own experience, Some of us have felt at times that our lives would have been cheaply spent a thousand times over by the bloodiest and most cruel deaths if we could save our hearers. And there have been moments of passion when we have been ready to say, Ah, if even my destruction could save them, I could almost go that length. But Moses and Paul are not alone in this expression, obviously, Spurgeon's just said. John Bunyan, in his autobiography, Grace Abounding, said of those that he preached to, and indeed I did often say in my heart before the Lord that if to be hanged up presently before their eyes would be a means to awaken them and confirm them in the truth, I would gladly be contented. And by hanged up, he meant the gallows. Spurgeon, who knew Bunyan well, commented in one of his sermons that Bunyan often felt while preaching that he would give up his own salvation for the salvation of his hearers. We could talk of many others. The long line of godly men, the machines, the, the Brainerds who, with his blood in the snow, prayed his heart out for the Indians in the Northeast. <clears throat> the Bonners. The, the list could be a mile long. It really could. We could spend all night here. And like the Hebrew says, you know, time you know fails to list the Barracks and the Samsons, and you know we don't have that time. But the fact is, this is not an uncommon experience in the heart of God's people. What was it then that made these men love like this? They simply were like their master to an eminent degree. They loved like he loved. Bengal, commenting on this passage, said whether he, Paul, wished only the deprivation of all good and his own destruction or annihilation or the eternal suffering also of every evil bodily and spiritual, or whether in the very excitement of that prayer he clearly conceived the matter, who knows? Whether Paul himself, had he been questioned, could have defined certainly. Certainly self was quite forgotten. He only regarded others for the sake of the divine glory. From the highest faith, he now displays the highest love enkindled by the divine love. And his statement, certainly self was quite forgotten. He only regarded others. This is really the point of it all. This, this was Paul's love, and it was like Jesus' love, with one great exception. Our precious Jesus not only could wish it, but did wish it, and did actually lay down his life and become the accursed thing for us. His love was boundless and selfless. And where he is, so is this love. Just listen to what the apostle prays. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. 
that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Take just a moment before we go into prayer and consider this spotless lamb, this love stronger than death, hell, and the grave. Was not Paul simply expressing the heart of his master, who was the man of sorrows, his master who looked on the multitudes and had compassion, who stood in the temple and cried out, Come unto me, all ye that labor, and I will give you rest. Who set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem for the very purpose of becoming the accursed thing for us. Who wept over the same Jerusalem that would soon sound the cry to crucify him. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I but you would not? The reason of Paul's anguish is revealed, as I said, in chapter 10, verse 1, that Israel might be saved. This is the heart of God that Paul is expressing. Ezekiel 33 says, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? How can we that profess to know this love love each other so little? In comparison. That's been a question I've been asking myself for weeks. <laughs> How can I say I know this love when I so little of it? How can we love the lost so little? How can we rest content without this great heaving, swelling love in our breasts? First mm. Corinthians 13 tells us, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and I have not love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. One of the primary marks of the days we live in, as Malcolm has pointed out in a roundabout kind of way, is that the love of many will wax cold. That's really what we're seeing. God forbid that it should be said of us. Jude beseeches us to keep ourselves in the love of God. How will we get this love? How will we, how will we plumb its depths? The same way Moses and Paul did. By looking full into the face of the Savior and basking in the glow of His love for us. Like Moses, we need to speak to God face to face. And when we come down from the mountain... Not only will our faces shine, but we will have hearts that overflow as well. We shall be like him when we, when, when, when we see him as he is. And the closer we get to him here, the more we will resemble him. This is why Paul could say, I could wish. And this is why the world will look at us and say, we know they are Christians. Look at how they love. Look at how they love one another. Look at how they love us. When we hear Paul say, I could wish, we need to realize that he can only say, he can only say it as a faint echo of the one that did say, I have set my face like a flint. The one that drank the cup to its bitter dregs, flinging it away, crying, it is finished, in a mighty voice. How deep, how wide, how immense is the love of God to us. And I was going to have a sing for him, and I don't think it's in the hymn. I'm going to read it to you, and then we'll, then we'll go to prayer.
I don't think I went too long. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the the saints and angels' song. When years of time shall pass away, and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who hear refuse to pray, on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure, and measureless and all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and the skies of parchment made, And were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above, would drain the ocean dry? Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky.